The following is a recording of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, visit gpts.edu. Uh, please remain standing. We're going to read Ecclesiastes 8, continuing the series of, in Ecclesiastes that we began last fall. We'll read chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and going all the way down through verse 17, which is the whole chapter. And remember, as I'm reading and as you're listening and perhaps following along in, in your copy of God's Word, uh, this is the word of God. Ecclesiastes 8.1. Who is like the wise? And who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. There's a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy, for man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful, for this, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God, that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Let's pray again. Lord, thank you for your word. Open our eyes to its truths. May we have open ears to hear from you. And teach us by your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. This is the middle of our study of Ecclesiastes. Actually, it's nearing the end. It's past the center of the book. And what we have seen is that Ecclesiastes seeks to give a perspective on life that is governed by wisdom. And a big part of the message of wisdom as we seek to understand and navigate the life that God has given to us, is, is an understanding of the limitations even of our own wisdom, the, the limitations of what we can know, what we can understand. 
As the writer of Ecclesiastes evaluates many things in life, he frequently concludes that all of it is a kind of breath. It's, it's translated in our Bibles as vanity or meaninglessness, but, but, the, but the Hebrew idiom is that it's a kind of wisp of smoke. And just when you think you've got your arms wrapped around it, just when you think you can grab a hold of it, it eludes your grasp. And that's true both in terms of the length of life, just when you think you have it figured out, your time is up. But it's also true about some of the big matters of life. Uh, Just when you think you have them figured out, you realize that there's greater complexity and and there are there are uh, problems that you didn't foresee and and there are all kinds of circumstances that you never could have predicted in in other words that it's not fully under our control and it never will be it wasn't meant to be under our control in the way that we so often think it ought to be many of the matters that the writer of ecclesiastes deals with have to do with personal life and so he'll deal with our relationships one to another at a personal level or or our own personal choices, uh, whether we opt for pleasure or whether we opt for an argument or whether we try to make peace, those kinds of very personal matters. But in Ecclesiastes 8, while he's giving advice, while he's preaching uh, to us personally and and still on the theme of wisdom, he's dealing with how we're to engage in the context of society, particularly how we're to live under authority. You see this in verse 2. He he introduces this idea of the king and the king's command. And I think in some measure that governs the whole chapter. We know from the scriptures that we're given certain very basic commands about how we're to engage with authority. Uh, The fifth commandment, of course, governs all of that. And we know that we're to respect and honor and obey proper authorities as instituted by the Lord. At the same time, we see all kinds of circumstances in the scriptures where this just isn't possible or whether it's very complicated. We see, for instance, the Egyptian midwives who who decide, in fact, that they're going to not obey the king's command and have the, the Hebrew uh, boys killed. Or, or we think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who when confronted by a direct command from King Nebuchadnezzar, say this, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Be known to you, O king. We will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. We see the same kind of tension in the New Testament as well. Uh, We see Peter and John when they're charged with not continuing to preach, with stopping their preaching. Uh, They say this, whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. We also see in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uh, use his citizenship and use the authority that was at his disposal for the advantage of the gospel. But what Ecclesiastes 8 is going to do is not not untangle all of those difficult situations for us. It's not necessarily going to give us a list of rules for how to always interact with those in authority over us. But it is going to give us general guidelines for how to engage with authority. General guidelines that it has to be said we must take with the utmost seriousness. Let's look at these guidelines together and see what they point us to. The first 
series of guidelines, I think, comes in verses two through nine. But first, I want to address verse one. Verse one acts as a kind of transition between chapter seven and chapter eight. Some commentators, in fact, argue that it would be better understood as the ending to chapter seven rather than the beginning of chapter eight. You may not remember what is in chapter seven. It's been some time since we've looked at it, but chapter seven gives a contrast, a series of contrasts between the wise life and the life of folly. I think it, it is a transitional verse. It could be understood as the end of that section. And of course, the chapter headings themselves were added much later. But I think it also serves as a bridge to this chapter as well, because what we're going to see is that both the beginning and end of this chapter talk about this idea of wisdom. And that's what the writer's trying to give us. He's trying to give us a wise uh, understanding of how to engage with those in authority over us. And so in that sense, verse one is very appropriate as an introduction to chapter eight. And again, I'd note that the end of chapter eight returns to this question of the wise man. In any case, let's look at the first section, which is really in verses two through nine. If we were to summarize this section, we'd say this, that what the preacher is driving home about authority, and in particular about the king here, is that we, in order to be wise, in order to live wisely, need to remember the nature of authority and to act accordingly. Now, what that means is, primarily, we need to remember the fact that those in authority over us, and again, he's talking primarily in the civil realm of the king, but this could be expanded to talk about many areas of life, that those in authority over us, that the king who's in authority has been placed there by God. And he's been placed there by God, and therefore, we need to order our lives and even think through our interactions with such a king in an appropriate way. Here's what he begins with in verse 2, this basic, uh, this basic uh, axiom, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. That should be our default position when it comes to questions of authority. Our default position when it comes to the civil authorities or others is just that, that we need to keep the command of the king and we keep the command of the king, not so much because we have great respect for him necessarily, but because we understand that he's given that position by God, that in fact God has placed him in that, in that position for our good and for God's own purposes. Some of those purposes are not discernible to us in the moment, but nonetheless, this is the work of God. God in his sovereignty establishes authority over us. God in his sovereignty establishes kings in the case of the writer of Ecclesiastes. And our obligation, our default setting has to be that we obey them. But there's more to it than that, because what the writer goes on to say in verses three and four is that it's not just that our default setting should be obedience, keeping the command of those who are over us. But also we need to act wisely when we're with them. It's not just a begrudging obedience that we're to give. It's not simply an obedience, but then some kind of uh, 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 statements against them. In fact, what he says in verse three is that you need to be wise and not 
uh, be hasty to leave the presence of the king. Now, now what he's getting at here is, is interesting, and I think the English translation may do us a disservice. He says, be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. I think the key to understanding what the writer is saying here is to zero in on that word translated as evil. It's a word actually that has a much broader uh, meaning in Hebrew. It can refer to uh, chaos or, uh, or, 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 or that kind of uh, di- disintegration. It's, often, it's often, uh, often natural disasters are referred, what we would call natural disasters are referred to in this way. So, so he's not simply saying, don't take your case in a, in a cause of moral evil. What he's actually, I think, in the context telling us is that the king and having this kind of royal authority is a good thing. Don't be so quick to turn your attention to the cause of undermining him. Don't be so quick to think that having no authority is better than having fallible authority. No, no, the Bible is consistent about this, and the writer of Ecclesiastes is consistent about this. God has placed kings in their positions, and regardless of how righteous or unrighteous they are, be very cautious about thinking that you would be better off without them. In fact, the consistent witness of Scripture is that without any kind of authority, there is utter chaos. And the writer of Ecclesiastes wants to remind us that a wise approach to authority acknowledges not only that authority has been instituted by God, but that authority in and of itself is a good thing. So it's unwise to stand in the midst of this kind of uh, chaotic or evil uh, situation. We might restate this and say, avoid, if you can, conflict and strife. Uh, Avoid, if at all possible, undermining these authorities that God has placed over you. And this has all kinds of applications, both to the way we speak, even to the way we think, the way we offer respect and honor to whom honor is due, and certainly to our behavior and to our keeping of the law. Now, what's the rationale behind this? Well, the, the, the preacher gives a rationale that is actually focused on the well-being that it will bring to us. Uh, He says in verse 4, in point of fact, uh, the word of the king is supreme, and and you aren't likely to to be able to undo that word of the king. Uh, In other words, it's what what was said colloquially in our own history. You, You can't fight city hall. It's very, very difficult for an individual to to take his stand and to win against these kinds of authorities. Now, again, it's not to say that there aren't situations where we're commanded to do something that we are morally obliged to do or or, or that we forbidden are are we morally forbidden from doing. And in those kinds of cases, of course, we have to obey God rather than men. And we've seen examples of that in the Bible. But nonetheless, as our default setting, the wise approach is to recognize that authority has been instituted by God. Authority is for our good, and very rarely will we be able to oppose it and escape unscathed. This is then what he uh, describes in verses 5 and 6 when he says there, there are appropriate times uh, for every 
uh, type of approach. But if you keep this command, verse 5, and you will know none of the, the chaos and difficulty. The wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. There is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. I think here what the preacher is doing is recognizing that there are certain circumstances in which we, as uh, those who fear the Lord, indeed do need to adjust the way in which we handle the kings and, and those in authority over us. But, but those are the exception, and they require great wisdom not to be taken at all lightly. That's why I think this, uh, this section, in a sense, would, would push us uh, to looking to those other hallmarks of wisdom that we find in Scripture. When you're looking for wisdom, when you're looking for discernment in these difficult situations, these rare and difficult ones that don't seem to match up closely with the the overriding principles that we have, uh, when you're in those situations, uh, some of the, uh, the, the important things that you can do, of course, are to pray. The Bible tells us if we lack wisdom, we're to pray and ask God who gives liberally without finding fault. We should talk to others who are wiser than ourselves. In other words, these kinds of wisdom situations described in verses 5 and 6 are to be undertaken with great care and with biblical counsel. Now, what's the second principle? The second principle is in uh, verses 10 through 13. And the second principle has to do with the way in which society, an ordered society, a society that's under some kind of human authority, as most are, will typically work itself out. And what he says is this, that in fact, what you're going to see if you live long enough in a society, if you live long enough under a particular regime or government, uh, you will see that there are many who go to their grave and they're praised for their life, and they're praised unjustly. He describes this scenario in verse 11. Uh, The sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, and the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. We can see here that the writer to Ecclesiastes is very realistic about the limitations of any cultural arrangement, of any societal arrangement. If you live under any government for long enough, you'll see plenty of injustice. You'll see plenty of people who should be praised, who in fact go to their grave ignored. You'll see plenty who are wicked, who seem to go to their grave unpunished. And the question is, what do you do? What what should your attitude be when you see that kind of thing? Should that mean that you, you throw aside all restraints, that you ignore what the first section of this chapter teaches us? Well, no, the writer to Ecclesiastes says that's the wrong conclusion to draw. It is true that you will see all kinds of imperfections. It is true that it will look as if the wrong people are promoted, the wrong people are lauded and praised, and the right people are ignored for a time. And yet, what should be our approach in the midst of it? Verse 12, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him, but it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. 
what the writer of Ecclesiastes is reminding us of, is of this, it is that that in all of this, God is the one who is ultimately sovereign. Remember, he started with that reality. You should obey the king because God's put him there. And here he says, you should continue to do what's right. You should continue to fear the Lord. You should continue to walk in obedience, even if it looks like sinners are promoted and never judged for it. Even if it looks like there's gross injustice in the arrangement that you see in your society, because ultimately he knows for a fact that those who fear God will be rewarded and those who are wicked will be judged. This is where we have to lean on texts as we, like we, those we see in the remainder of the Old Testament and in the New Testament as well. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. And what the writer of Ecclesiastes says is we need to bear that in mind. It's very tempting when we see those kinds of things to think that what needs to be done is we need to overthrow any kind of uh, human administration, any kind of authority structure, because after all, it's flawed and the wrong guys are in charge and the very best people don't ever seem to be put in charge. No, no, the writer of Ecclesiastes says that may well be the case. In fact, you can expect that it will be the case. But even if it is the case, you look to the Lord for your vengeance. You look to the Lord for justice. You know that he's promised reward for those who seek his face and do his will. And he's promised judgment for those who rebel against him. Well. Finally, we see this third section of chapter 8, and I think it still is dealing with the same basic question of how to live under authority in, in a society. But here he returns to a theme that he has addressed on many occasions throughout the book and will continue to address for the remainder of the book. And that has to do with the unpredictability of life and its circumstances in verses 14 through 17. What he acknowledges here is what he's already acknowledged, that in fact, it may be the case that there are wicked people who appear to have some measure of success. There are righteous people, verse 14, to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. There are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of of the righteous. And he says, this is vanity. In other words, you'll never, you'll never be able to figure that out in this life. You'll never be able to predict that because isn't it the case that some people that you think have escaped justice end up in, in fact, having justice done to them later on at a time no one could have predicted. And isn't it also the case that you know, know of people who appear to be righteous and never receive their just due, but, it, but one, at one time they, they do, at a time when they least expect it. It's, it's, it's impossible to predict these things, the writer of Ecclesiastes says. That it's the, there's a kind of vanity to it. And so what should our conclusion be? How should we go about our lives? Well, what we should do is uh, we should recognize that God has given us blessings for us to enjoy, and those provide their own reward. 
you can't guarantee what will happen tomorrow. You certainly can't guarantee what will happen to someone else tomorrow, whether he's a righteous man or a wicked man. But God has given you days of life under the sun. And what the writer says, I commend joy during those days. Now, this is difficult for us because there's a humility that the writer of Ecclesiastes is pointing us towards that certainly doesn't come naturally to us. We have to, in a sense, if we take a chapter like this seriously, we have to recognize that some of these truths about life, these uncomfortable truths about life, and particularly life within a society, are are ones that we will not fully understand. And yet, he commends joy in the midst of it. And we also need a kind of humility, because we need to recognize that however imperfect the societal arrangements may be, our, our default setting is to obey those whom God has placed in authority over us. I think ultimately this, these last few verses, verses 16 and 17, are immensely helpful in reinforcing this perspective. What he reminds us of is that while we will not fully understand all the work that God is doing under the sun in and through those whom he has placed over us, Nonetheless, we know that God himself is at work and he is in control of all of it. I think taking a close look at human kings, human authority, how we're to engage with those whom God has placed over us in the human sphere, ultimately also should uh, should push us uh, to have greater praise in our hearts for the sovereignty of God for the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, that's infused throughout the chapter. We obey the king because God is in charge. We we recognize we may not see justice in this life, but nonetheless, we obey God's commands because God is the rewarder of those who seek him. And in the midst of life's vicissitudes, we take joy because God's given us blessings from him. Ultimately, I think looking at these earthly kings turns our attention very clearly to the glory of our heavenly king. The Lord Jesus Christ in John 18 confesses before Pilate that his kingdom is not of this world, and it's not moved forward by violence, and it's a kingship for everyone who listens to the truth. Oh, but it's a It's a glorious kingship. Jesus Christ is indeed in control. He must be in control for all of these truths about our human government to be put in effect in our lives. How is he in control? Well, here we have clear and concise teaching, even from our own confession, that Christ executes his office as our ultimate king, in subduing us to himself, in ruling and defending us, and in restraining and conquering his and all our enemies. We serve human kings. We live in the midst of unjust regimes. 
because Jesus Christ is our true king, because he's the one to whom all authority in heaven and on earth has been granted. He's the one who's ruling and reigning now. He's the one who will return and subdue those who have rebelled against him. And he's the one who will reward those who in the midst of the perplexities of life, this vain life, this life that is but a mist, nonetheless looked to the unshakable kingdom and to the city whose builder and maker is God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these truths from your word. These are difficult things for us. We gravitate to easy answers, but we thank you for these things. We need the truths of your word. We'd be in the dark if you hadn't revealed yourself to us. So, Father, use your word even now as we meditate on it. By your spirit, we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Yeah, thanks. Thank you for tuning in to this production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information, please visit gpts.edu.